continue on. We're talking about Nehemiah. Uh, we've been walking through the last several weeks, uh, verse, by, verse by verse, through the book of Nehemiah in the Old Testament. And he's building a wall. He's re- rebuilding uh, really the whole city of Jerusalem. And um, this is about 440 years before Jesus came to earth, so about 2,400 years ago. And we see that he built a physical wall, a physical city, but we, um, as disciple makers, are helping to expand a spiritual kingdom, one where Jesus is king and we're the servants, and we want this to expand in the hearts of all the people uh, that we meet all over the city, all over the state of Kansas, and throughout the world. And so that's a, um, our mission, our uh, commission that God gives us. And so we're going to see that parallel as we walk through here. And tonight we're talking um, about Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 through 32, a whole bunch of verses, and we're going to preach them a little bit different, which I'll explain in a second. But the big idea is that kingdom building is a team effort. It's a team effort. You know, growing up in the United States, uh, for all the things that we could complain about in the school system, one thing that I think most public schools do a pretty good job of is teaching uh, the value of team sports. Like you learn at an early age, um, you're encouraged to be in some kind of team sport, uh, whether it be something like forensics or, or um, even um, some kind of academic club to, of course, basketball, football, baseball, track, all kinds of things that require you to be uh, on a team. And so, you know, if you've got any kind of seventh grade uh, basketball or volleyball t-shirt, there's probably going to be some team saying or cliche on there like teamwork makes the dream work or a variety of other wonderful ones that uh, you probably got somewhere stuffed in your drawers right now or your wardrobe at home. And we know um, there's a lot of value in teams. But as you grow up and you're an adult, or you try to be an adult, uh, sometimes we lose sight of the value of being on a team. Matter of fact, how many of you right now are on any sort of team? Five, six? Okay, this backfired. I didn't think that many people would be on a team. For those of you who are on a team, though, you know unless um, it's through your job that requires you to be on a team, um, or you go out of your way to be in some kind of extracurricular, some kind of intramural uh, basketball team or whatever, uh, most things in our adult life don't force us onto being in a team. Matter of fact, most things in our culture uh, want to exalt the individual and get us away from being on a team. Um, but I remember, uh, I remember in 1992, some of you, this is just going to, this, this is, this is going to go over your head. 1992, as a young pup, I was watching, um, the Summer Olympics, and there was a basketball team, professional basketball team from the USA. We called them the Dream Team. Anyone remember the Dream Team? Oh, yeah, the Dream Team. You got Michael Jordan, Carl Malone, Charles Barkley, David Robinson, Magic Johnson, Patrick Ewing. I mean, on and on and on, with the exception of Christian Leitner, which I don't know how he got on there. But um, for those of you who, who followed basketball, you probably remember, like I did as a young pup, like this is amazing. They went all over the world, and they just smashed every team they played. They won every game by an average of 46 points. And I remember um, being like eight years old watching that, thinking, what in the world? Like, this is the most magnificent group of basketball players on, on earth. And up until that point, you only saw teams um, in the league or even in college that um, were kind of handpicked, but um, it wasn't the best of the best, and this was just the best of the best. And it was because they were all handpicked. People knew this is the best of the best. How many of you have ever been handpicked for a team? Some of us have been left out <laughs> a time or two. Uh, but when you follow Jesus and you sign up to be part of the family of God, 
you get to be part of a team. And Ephesians chapter 2 says that you were chosen before the foundations of the earth um, to be a part of this team, that there's good works set before you to do. And so you've got to learn that the church is a lot of things, but the church is also a team. And we've got a mission. We've got goals. We want, we've got things that we want to accomplish um, that God tells us we are here to accomplish. It's been said uh, before that the church doesn't have a mission, but the mission has a church, that we as a church, um, we exist we exist to be um, on fire, sharing the gospel and helping the people that we meet um, intentionally follow Jesus. And so, Nehemiah, it's all about a building project. He's building a wall. He's building a city. Um, but the greatest building project in the history of the world is the church. And Jesus is building his church, and he wants you and I to be a part of it. And we're called in First Peter to be living stones. And we are, we are spiritual temples. And, and so we're growing, and he's the cornerstone. He's the capstone. He is uh, the captain, the coach of this thing. Um, but we got a role to play. And so we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to read all 32 verses. Normally we walk through um, verses, we throw them up on the screen, and we just kind of methodically walk through them all. But since we've got 32, and they're all part of the same passage, and there's really no way for me to break this up into multiple weeks, and um, once I start reading, you won't want me to, because <laughs> it's just a big, long list of names that I'm going to butcher half of them. But um, we're going to do something a little bit different. Um, I want you to be the student and to teach me a little bit. Uh, I want you to think about themes. I want you to think about repetition. Um, and if you were at home studying this passage, what would you get from this? Because this is what happens. When we're at home and we get into those uh, books like Numbers, and you're reading all these lists and genealogies, and someone begat someone who begat someone else who then you fell asleep when you read the fourth, and you're just like, man, this is, what is what's the purpose of this? And you can be hyper-spiritual and try to make something out of it that it's not, or you can just pass over it and say, I don't want to read the Bible anymore because this is just weird, and I'm having a hard time finding the practicality in it. But there's some beauty in it, and so I want to teach you a little bit about that beauty, and we're going to have to do this together in order for you to to grasp some of these things that you can do um, on your own. So don't overthink this. Um, don't try to find incredible hidden meanings, um, but just think about um, what you see, the repetition, the patterns, and, and we'll stop along the way, and um, I want to get your feedback. So buckle in here. Um, we're in Nehemiah chapter 3. I preach out of the ESV here. If you've got a Bible, uh, feel free to open it or uh, pull it up on your phone, whatever you do, and we'll walk through this. So it says in Nehemiah 3, chapter, chapter 3, verse 1, Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. And they consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel. And next to him, the men of Jericho built. And next to him, Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassanah built the fish gate. And they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshullam, the son of Barakiah, uh, son of Mesh. Oh my gosh, this is going to get, this is going to get wonderful here. Meshazebel repaired, and next to them, Zadok, the son of Bana, repaired, and next to them, the Tekoites repaired. This is an interesting verse here. We'll, we'll talk about that in a second. But their nobles would not stoop to serve the Lord. And Joida, the son of Pasiah, and Meshullam, the son of Besodea, repaired the gate of Yeshanana. And they, here's, a, here's one thing you learn early in Bible college. If you are reading a passage like this, if you just go fast and you have confidence, then everyone will assume that you're, you're, you're saying it right. 
You just, you just got to go quick. You just got to go fast. Maybe cough a couple times and jump over some names. And they laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Maranathite, and men of Gibeon, and of Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel, the son of Harahiah, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to them, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired. And they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rapahiah, the son of Hur, Ruler of half the district of Jerusalem repaired. I just realized, some of you guys, this is the first time you've ever been to the study. This is a beautiful passage for you. You're like, what are we doing here? We we can't skip over these verses. It's it's scripture. It's all scripture. That was a third, by the way. We're on verse 10. Next to them, I just had to catch my breath is what I was doing. Jedediah, the son of Harumph, <laughs> repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabaniah, Repaired, I think they just combine a couple names just to trip you up. Malkajah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pahath Moab, repaired another section in the Tower of the Ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. So they're just going along the wall, explaining who all's repairing. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Malkajah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Harakarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kolhozah, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pool of Shalah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, this is a different Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to the point opposite of the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and as far as the house of the mighty men. So a lot of these references um, were 500 years earlier when David and, and his mighty men were there. Um, after him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Bani, next to him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for its for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hanadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite the ascent to the armory of the Butrus. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the Butrus to the door of the house of Eliashib, the high priest. Okay, verse 21. How many of you would have fallen asleep by now if you were just doing this at home? This is where Bible studies stop, right? And then six months later, you say, I know I need to get back into the Bible, but I just can't. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakkos, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, so other villagers came, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. And after them, Azariah, the son of Masai, son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benui, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the Butrus to the corner. And Palal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the Butrus to the tower, projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Padiah, the son of Parosh, and the temple servants living in Ophel, repaired to the point opposite the water gate on the east. And the projecting tower. After him, the Tikoites repaired another 
section opposite opposite the great projecting tower as far as the wall of Ophir. Above the horse gate, the priest repaired. Three more verses, guys. We can do this. Repaired each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Immer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shemaiah, the son of Shechaniah, the keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalaf, repaired another section. After him, Mesholam, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Malkajah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the mustard gate. And to, sounds like a game of clue there, the mustard gate, anyway. And to the upper chamber of the corner, and between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. All right, you guys did it. You read a chapter of the Bible. Congratulations. Okay, now tell me what it means. Yeah. Well, this is 445 B.C. Um, Jerusalem had been attacked several times. The biggest attack was 587, roughly, uh, B.C., so 100-plus years earlier. That's when the temple was destroyed, so the first temple was gone. And the Babylonians came and took all of those people into exile. So slowly but surely, Daniel and then Esther, you read Esther, um, those books teach Ezra um, was 14 years before this. Some of the exiled people come back and they start to rebuild, but they had not rebuilt everything, and there was still a lot left. And so Nehemiah starts by saying um, in chapter 1 that he heard that things aren't rebuilt to the extent that they thought, and he was heartbroken, and that's what starts this whole thing. So, good. Anyone else? What do you see? What themes, if any? Teamwork. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Good. Yeah. For sure. Good. Look at you guys. That's good. Those are good details. We're going to hit on a couple of them. Um, yeah, that's it starts with the high priest, and uh, the spiritual guy is getting dirty. Anybody else? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, part of the Bible is, is just history and, and understanding that this is accurate. Um and so some people wonder if uh, Nehemiah chapter 3 was actually written by Nehemiah um, or if it was just found in his memoirs and people added it because it's third person, not first person. And so some um, believe maybe he, he wrote this down or someone else wrote it down. And, and then um, um, as he, as this book was put together and written that it was included then. Um, good. Well, let me mention this. Um, we're going to talk about four two. Four team truths, but this is this is really important because as you hear preachers preach, there's some really 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 good preachers out there. Um, but they 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 can every preacher has to watch what I'm about to tell you. And, and as you study the Bible at home, um, this is going to be 
This is going to be crucial. Okay, if you went to a Bible college, you would probably early on have to take a class called hermeneutics. Anyone ever heard that fancy word? It just means the interpretation of Scripture. Like, that's why you go to Bible college. You want to know, how do I read the Bible? And it breaks down into two basic ways. Here's the two basic ways. Uh, We call them exegesis and eisegesis. In other words, one of them is Scripture speaks to you. That's exegesis. That's the good way. Or you speak to Scripture. That's eisegesis. That's not the good way. And some can preach the second way and um, basically come up with random spiritual truths from this um, and put it on Scripture and and their own agenda and their own experiences and make Scripture say what they want to say. And you've got to be really careful of that. And you say, really? Did you find that in there? Um, The other way, exegesis, this is the way that you're taught to study scripture. This is where regardless of your life experience, what you want to believe, what you think, what you were told by your mama or your grandma, when you open the Bible, the Bible is your authority. It's over you, and it tells you the truth. You don't tell it the truth. And so you've got to bow down to what it says. And so if you're going to preach a passage like this, and you're thinking, okay, how am I going to preach this? Um, Several of the things that you guys mentioned are all good. But it doesn't directly say those things. It just implies those things. And what you have to make sure is that if you're going to say, well, we're going to take four truths of, of teamwork from this that is backed up from other scripture. And that's the, that's the big key. Um, because if we did uh, the eisegesis, we put our own agenda on it, I could come and I could say, I'm going to give you four truths about numbers. And I could say, well, 32. If you ever do a building project, the magic number is 32. You're going to get $32,000 from every person in your congregation, and you're going to have $32,000. And this, and you, and you say, where do you get 32? Well, there's 32 verses in this. You say, what? You can say, but I'm telling you, this is how some people preach. And they just pull stuff, and you've got to be careful. If you're going to take um, principles from Scripture, it has to be backed up um, in other places, and then it's affirmed and confirmed here, and it obviously can't be taken out of context. So that's just a little, just something for yourself as you dig into Scripture. Exegesis, good. Eisegesis, not good. Scripture tells you um, what to believe. You don't tell Scripture what it should mean. So let's jump into some practical stuff. Here's 14 things that we can learn here, because the big idea is that this is about teamwork um, and a whole bunch of people coming together for a great cause. And so Number one, it takes a great game plan to accomplish great things. This is what we see Nehemiah as a leader. He is an amazing organizer, superstar organizer. Here's the thing. In Nehemiah chapter 6, it tells us it took them 52 days to complete this project. Let me put this in perspective for you. He's rebuilding basically the whole city of Jerusalem, and it's a little bit smaller than the old city because there was still rubble all around. But here's the thing. It was about four and a half miles of wall described here. 960 acres was the city of Jerusalem. Most of the walls were about eight feet thick and went up to, in spots, 40 feet. This is not a little thing. And this dude comes in here, and we see he earlier chapters, he went three nights where he's going around checking things out, making sure, and he's organizing and planning. And he had a few months before that, before he asked the king of Persia whether he could have permission to come do this. And so here he is, now, and he gets all this done with, in 52 days. This is crazy. He says in all these 32 verses that there are 45 different sections of construction. 45. So picture organizing 45 groups of people and all the chaos that that would um, take place. A couple of you mentioned um, that, that he 
had different people with different skills doing different things. He organized these people based on their skills, based on um, their geography. It says that they were close to their own homes in many cases here, and their common interests, what they had. There's tons of planning. Here's what people often think when they think of the Bible. And when we think about making disciples and expanding the spiritual kingdom of God, not just the physical kingdom, we think, well, planning's evil. Because you read Proverbs, and there's some things about planning that's not good. Um, but God's not anti-planning. Matter of fact, what's one of the most famous verses that you've ever heard in Christianity? It comes from Jeremiah 29, I know the plans that I have for you. God's a planner. God's not a God of chaos. And some of us think if we're going to follow the Holy Spirit, we can't plan anything um, because, you know, we just got to go with the flow, right? And, and that's not how God works. Here's the bad thing about plans. Plans, when it comes from man and our own plans for our own life, that's what Scripture speaks against. That's obviously a no-no. And so, are you looking for the kids thing? Yep, downstairs. And so, I thought, I was starting to connect dots there. Um, She's like, what Bible study did I just walk in on? I don't know. And so when you think about plans, though, um, God's a planner. Matter of fact, uh, Jesus, when it comes to following him, says count the cost. Count the cost. What, what, what builder doesn't count the cost? What uh, commander doesn't count the cost before they build, before they go into battle? And so you've got to be thinking about um, planning when it comes to the kingdom of God. You ever done anything without a game plan? How does it work? Sometimes not very good. Um, you go with the flow on little stuff, and sometimes those little things turn into big things. We, I told you a week or two ago that Tara and I, we've been building a deck, and when winter ended and we were getting into spring, we were like, you know what? We've got broken concrete steps in front of the house, and um, we probably need to do something about that. And so I thought, I'm going to just cover that up with a little deck. And so I got out there. I started measuring things, and I didn't really have a game plan, but I was just going to kind of go with it. And I knew how much I, I, I didn't want to spend, um, but I was just going to kind of – kind of go with it. And so I I went out there, I started measuring, and then I was like, well, it should be like nine feet here, a little over eight feet. Well, if you're going eight feet, you got to buy 10-foot boards. And so just why don't you make it 10 feet? And so it turns out to be a little bit bigger than I thought. And so I go to the store, and I start getting a bunch of lumber. And instead of like the normal five-fourths deck boards, I'm like, you know what? You should probably get two-inch. You should get two-bys, because that's going to be stronger, right? It's, it's, a, it's a wider thing. And then I bought, got a bunch of trusses, and I was like, you know what? I don't know. I was going to do two-foot, but now that it's bigger, you really need every 16 inches. And so I got a bunch of trusses. And then at first, I had just like four little stringers for the steps, because the steps weren't going to be very wide. And I said, you know what? If you're going all 10 feet, why don't you just go 10 feet across? <laughs> now, it looks like we're walking into a palace when you come up, because I got 10 feet of four steps, and it's just, it's a big, beautiful, I, I feel like I should pray as I'm walking up into this temple. And and then we started thinking, well, you know what? If we're going to do this, um, then we need to up the game on the railing. And so we've got these black bars for the railing. And it's like, well, if we're going to do the black bars, we need to stain it a certain color to make that black look good. And so then we started getting into stain. And then we're like, you know what? If we're going to do lattice underneath, like that stain's not going to look good. And who wants lattice anyway? And there's concrete underneath. So then we got big old boards to go over. And now we got like our deck boards on the side. And then we started thinking, well, if you're going to do that, you don't want those showing because they're just looking ugly because it's like tons of deck board on your side where you normally put lattice, but lattice is gross. And so we did something else. And now we end up like, well, well what we got to do is now put a flower bed around there to hide some of what we just did. And so then we thought, well, if we're going to do the flower bed and we're going to stain it that way, we should probably do something with the fence because the fence needs stained. And then I thought, well, the fence is nasty looking, so I need to just replace those boards. And then I thought, well, if I replace the boards, I should go in the back because there ain't even a, there ain't even a fence back there. And if I'm going to do the fence, I need to do it all at once. And so then before you know it, Friday I'm picking up fence boards. 
And you see, when you have little projects, but you don't have a plan, then little things can turn into big things. But when you see the big picture, you need to even get the little details in order. And when Nehemiah walks into this, he knows it's a monster project. And there's tons and tons of details that we see working out. He had to have organized this in an amazing way. 52 days. 52 days. And he knocked this out. We don't talk much about this, but the church has an organizational side. It has an organizational side. We want everything just to be super spiritual, and I'm not saying this is disconnected from the spiritual, but if we're going to make disciples of all nations, shouldn't the local church have a bit of a strategy, a bit of a game plan? Seeking the Lord in it, recognizing this is a huge task. How are we going to do this? So when you ask yourself that, you think, well, 30,000 foot view, how is the church going to do that? Um, and then on the ground, what does it look like for each individual to do that? 30,000 foot view, when we planted this church, we have to ask ourselves, how are we going to take someone who doesn't know the name of Jesus, doesn't know anything about Jesus, and they walk in here and we're called to make them into a disciple, a maturing disciple? How do you do that? How do you do that? So you've got to sit down, you've got to think about this. And so we have discipleship strategy stuff that we call love God, grow up, serve all. And what we do here is all intentional. It's on purpose, right? When you plant churches, you've got to think through this. And having planted a few churches, I've spent a lot of time thinking through this kind of stuff. And then you think about um, even how multi-sites, all of our campuses together. If you're going to be one church in many locations, how are we going to work together? So we have uh, something we call the executive team. It's a group of pastors, but they're skilled with organization. And you say, well, I don't want some group of people from another city telling me what to do. No, you want a group of people from another city helping to tell you what to do because it can be chaos um, financially. And even you think about uh, reaching 10% of our city and how hard that is and how we need to be thinking about how to actually do that. But what about 10% of the state of Kansas? Because that's the vision of Crosspoint. That's almost 300,000 people. And so let me give you just kind of uh, an update on some things that you might not hear on a Sunday that happen behind the scenes organizationally. Right now, did you know there's a little group of believers, about 40 people in Newton that considers themselves a Crosspoint campus? They meet, um, they serve the Lord, but who, who, who would they talk to? There's no, there's no local campus there, so they're talking to the exec team, right? There's two little churches in southeast Kansas that want to be um, Crosspoint. We've got 68 families in Wichita either driving to Hutchinson each weekend or watching the sermons online who want to be part of a campus in Wichita. We've got a Spanish campus that's going to be starting in Hutchinson. We've got a campus pastor moving from Colorado, one from South America coming June 1st. We're going to start translating everything into Spanish so that we can send it around the state of Kansas, get into places we couldn't otherwise have gotten into. Um, we've got uh, a prison ministry. It's essentially a Crosspoint campus in Hutchinson. It started with 40 uh, inmates. And uh, two weeks ago, we baptized 21 of them. And the gospel's spreading through the prison down there. We've got an opportunity possibly to do the same thing in Ellsworth. Um, we've got people all over the country, all over the world, using our resources that we're trying to bless, bless, bless. We're a 501c3. We're a nonprofit, right? The organizational side of things. But within that, we started a whole separate 501c3 as a church, and we call this, for lack of better terms, church in a box. And it's every resource we could ever come up with on how to plant a church so that college students could go back to their dorm rooms and they can watch all the sermons, live stream, all the grow group material on the Roku box, um, and they can have church there. They can be on mission in their dorm or ranchers who have crazy schedules in rural Kansas can do this with a few other ranchers. And so we've got all kinds of things in the works. We've got ways to bless little communities all over Kansas. We've got uh, Sterling, Kansas. Um, there's a coffee shop that's kind of part of the core of the community. And that coffee shop came to us and said, we essentially want to give you this business. 
Um, and we've been thinking about how can we go into all these small towns where the economy is going down, but add value to the city while we reach people for Christ and provide income for the campus pastor who would be there. And so we've got a coffee shop down there that's already rocking and rolling in Sterling that we're taking over um, that we can then hopefully duplicate in other towns where we can start small coffee shops, provide a blessing and value to the city, reach the city, provide a space for the city to be to have a, a church plant in um, and provide income for the person leading it. Like all this stuff organizationally to reach people in the kingdom, like it's huge. It's huge. But let me ask you, how do you do it individually? Do you have a disciple-making plan? Like do you have, um, you got plans for everything else, right? What I'm going to do after college? What classes I'm going to take? What I'm going to do with my kids? What school they're going to go to? What am I going to do in retirement? We plan for everything. But don't you think we should have some personal plans when it comes to the kingdom? And I'm not saying you got to go crazy with it, but do you have a list of people that you pray for? I just pray for my coworkers. Do you really pray for your coworkers? Or, or maybe you need to journal. Maybe you need to get a list and say, I'm going to pray for these people. I'm going to devote myself to praying for them X amount of times um, throughout the week or throughout the day or, or on my phone or whatever. I'm going to pray specifically for them. And maybe you need to think and even categorize in your mind, help organize in your mind a little bit. Who am I reaching out to? Who, what coworkers? Um, or what, what's the next step for them? Some of them I might need to, um, I, don't know, I might just need to talk to because I don't know them very well. I've been wanting to for years. Uh, some of them I need to invite them to church. Some of them I need to just invite them to dinner um, and get them out of the workplace and just build a relationship with them. Uh, some of them I just need to share the gospel with because we're to that point. Um, and they want to know the hope within me and it's time to share it. Uh, do, you, do you think about that? Um, strategize in your mind. If you're going to strategize for every other part of your life, why not the kingdom of God? Because that's the kingdom worth expanding. If you ain't got no game plan, a lot of times there's no action. Number two, leaders and laity are teammates. So it takes a great game plan to accomplish great things, but leaders and laity are often teammates. I'll explain that in a second. It says um, there's a whole bunch of different people. One of you, I think, Jade, you mentioned uh, that each person had different skills. Here's a list of some of the people that you see here in Nehemiah, all working together side by side. The priests, the high priest, kudos on that one, uh, goldsmith, uh, goldsmiths, perfumers, rulers, governors, citizens, villagers, temple servants, and merchants. Those are just some of the names of people all using their gifts, their skills together to make this happen. But it also says in um, verse 1, it's all kick-started by uh, Eliashib, the high priest, who rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. Eliashib's great-grandfather uh, helped to rebuild the temple um, soon after. And so this is a guy who knows. He's the high priest. He could be doing all the spiritual work and nothing but spiritual work, but he's getting, um, he's setting the pace for this work. He's getting down and dirty. He's in the trenches. So you got perfumers and priests working next to each other. What a beautiful thing. There's no separation here. This is, this is for all of the mistakes that the Israelites have. They've got this beautiful sense of community rallying around an amazing cause. The kingdom of God being built physically. And we're building it spiritually. And so it's, it's beautiful because in the church we have in America, um, on a regular basis, we separate clergy and laity or the leaders in the congregation. And we not only separate um, in that we often have 10% of the people doing 90% of the work, right? Pastors need to do all the work and, and the congregation is there to be fed. But we also, um, and, and you might not think about this, but we also separate the physical and the spiritual. 
Well, that the leaders and certain people who are gifted in spiritual things, who are a little more spiritual than the rest of us, they're the ones who share the gospel. They're the ones who make disciples. They're the ones who do all the spiritual stuff. But the rest of us are just servants behind the scenes who, like, think about it. If you go to a meal with a bunch of Christians and you got a pastor or a church leader there, um, all, a lot of people will be the worker bees, and they'll be the Marthas who are bringing the food in and they're doing all the work physically. But then it's like, oh, we should pray for the meal. Who's going to pray for the meal? Same person who cooked it? Or where's the pastor at? We ask for the pastor, right? We ask for the spiritually, uh, what we consider the spiritually elite. But what they've done is they've break, broken down those walls. And they say, we're all in this together. In the kingdom of God, the, the, the last is first and the first is last. It's an upside down kingdom. Doesn't matter your race, your gender. Doesn't matter what job you have, your social economic status. We're all equal and we're all making an impact together. And this means on a practical level, number one, that shepherds and leaders in the local church need to humble themselves and make sure they're not holier than thou, that they're getting down and, and in the trenches with those that they're working next to and to lead by example. A lot of times, pastors start to shepherd, separate themselves from the sheep. Um, as churches get bigger, they, they start to get away from practical ministry and they can preach about the good old days, but they're not living the good old days of ministry. And on the flip side, the congregation has to make sure that they don't expect the spiritual people to do the spiritual stuff, but they see themselves as a royal priesthood, and they are a priesthood of believers who take ownership of the actual spiritual work in the church. That it's not just the pastor who's there to feed them, it's the pastor who's there to train them so they can, as Ephesians 4 says, do the work of the ministry. When you see that happening, it's a beautiful thing. Yesterday, um, Tara was doing something with the kid. I think she was like cleaning toys or something. She was with Silas and uh, she came into my office before she went home and she said, I hit my head on something in the kid's room. And I was like, huh, that stinks. And I was typing on my computer, doing something. And I looked up and I said, what's wrong with your face? And she was like, my face? What are you talking about? That's never a good thing to say to your wife, by the way. And, uh, and I was like, you got something like right here. It was like kind of red. looked like she'd, maybe, maybe that's where she hit her face. And I said, oh, is that where you hit your face? And he's like, where? Like right here? I was like, yeah. I said, you should go look in a mirror. She's like, look in a mirror? Great. I should, you know, it, just, it wasn't good. I was like, eh, it's okay. Never mind. Never mind. And then she um, must have touched her head or something because she saw that she was bleeding. And she put her head down, and, you know, she's got some pretty, pretty thick hair. She can go through some conditioner, right, in a good way. And she, and she um, had a big old thing of, like, just a bloody mess going on up there. And I was like, what in the world? You're bleeding. That's what that was on her face, which she must have touched and kind of rubbed like this. And, and it was that moment of, like, oh, my gosh, do you need stitches? Like, head wounds, this ain't good. And, and are you okay? And so we kind of assessed the situation for a bit. But she realized she needed to go home real quick and um, check that out, wash her hair, and, and it, you know, kind of get it under control. And she seemed okay. It didn't look like she had a concussion or anything. Otherwise, we would have taken a different route there. But there was that moment of awkwardness, that tension, where Silas was sitting on my lap, and Tara was there. We were looking at her bloody noggin, and we were thinking, somebody should probably, like, pray. Or do something spiritual in this moment. And we're sitting in the pastor's office, so it should probably be me, because I'm also the husband and the father. And I looked at Silas, who, of course, is four, and I said, buddy, you should pray for mom. So Silas prayed for us. You see, that's a, that's a small example. I could have obviously prayed, and I was praying. 
But like in that moment, that was an opportunity for him who would expect dad, who's the pastor, who's the spiritual guy, who's talking about Jesus, to be the one to pray. But like I'm training him because he is the one going to be doing the work of the ministry. And when we pray at night, I used to just pray for him. We used to just pray for him. Now I say, buddy, you pray for me, I'll pray for you. You pray for mom, I'll pray for you. I got to get him used to how he he's a minister. It's easy. You can just nonchalantly be fed, 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 and you're wondering, what am I getting fed for? Either I need to go burn this off and do some work for the kingdom, <laughs> or I'm being led to the slaughter. I'll say this. Um, if Crosspoint or any local church that you might be a part of is going to reach your city, the number one tactic, the number one strategy, the number one reality has got to be, and this is, this is this option and then all others, is that every single person sees themselves, as Peter says, as a chosen nation, a royal priesthood, and that you see your work and your school and your home and everyone you meet as your mission field. And that your heart and your mind is thinking all day long, how can I help the next person follow Jesus? How can I help that person follow Jesus? It's all different. For some, it's a smile. It's a handshake. It's, it's seeing the light. For others, it's sharing the gospel. For others, it's an invite to church. For everyone's different. But if you got your mind in that way, and I'll be honest, as we grow as a church, this is something that we need at Crosspoint. We need to not only see ourselves as missionaries out there, which we talk about, obviously, on a regular basis, but we need um, people who aren't on staff, people who, aren't, um, who, who are just volunteers to be leading in the spiritual work. Some of you can teach classes. Some of you can do a better job at teaching spiritual things than I can. And you need to be up here doing this instead of me. And that means I got to be able to delegate and give up control. But it means you got to step up and say, I could do this. And I see us as a church that needs to equip and mobilize. But we got to have people step up because I can't do it all. And I can't even do a fraction of it. Um, and so take that to heart. What can you teach? What can you bless? How can you equip and maybe God's calling you to step up. I hope that we are, I hope, I hope that, man, we're just getting started with the ministries that God's going to put in your heart um, here at Crosspoint because there's, there's amazing potential. Number three, every player has a part and every part has a purpose. Every player has a part and every part has a purpose on this team. Where do we get that? 31 times out of 32 verses, you hear this word. Remember, I, I told you earlier, look for repetition, look for repetition. Next to him or after him, next to him or after him, over and over and over. Notice there's no bench warmers. There's no section in chapter 3 that says, and here's the group that did nothing. <laughs> here's the group that didn't understand they were part of the team. Here's the cheerleaders on the side. No, it only mentions those who were in the work. And it wasn't just people, it wasn't just Jews in Jerusalem. It said that villagers, people, a bunch of those cities that we could hardly pronounce, those were places outside of Jerusalem. People were coming in from other places to be a part of this big work. Man, I think that's what the local church needs to look like. Right now, we've got a bunch of bench warmers. We've got a bunch of people who don't see themselves as part of the team, part of the game but we all got a job. What's your part? What are you gifted in? Everyone has a gift. First Peter 4.10 says everyone has been given a spiritual gift. You might have multiple spiritual gifts, but if the Holy Spirit is in you and it's in everyone whose faith is in Jesus as Lord and Savior, then with that comes gifts. 
that God wants you to use for his kingdom. And that's the body being the body, right? And so some of those are encouragement or faith or giving and mercy, things that are, that are um, beautiful, but you just got to be around people to use them. Some of them are more um, on stage stuff. A lot of them are behind the scenes stuff, but they're all valuable. They're all equal. They're all equal. Here's a couple questions I want you to ask yourself when it comes to the kingdom of God and seeing your role in it and your purpose. Um, number one, if you could do anything for the kingdom of God, what would it be? Money is not an issue. Like you ain't even got to be realistic. Maybe you're in school right now and you're thinking, I couldn't do that. I want to go, I want to preach the gospel in Africa. That's what I would do um, if I could just do anything. But man, I couldn't financially do it. And I'm in school for a couple more years, so that ain't going to happen. For, forget what hindrances might be there. But if you could do anything, your heart's desire, because we're trusting to a degree. If you're, if you're apart from Christ, you can't trust your heart. <laughs> if you've got a new heart in Christ and you're serving his kingdom and you're seeking him and abiding in him, there's a level, there's a level, right, um, of you being able to trust what God has put on your heart, right? And so if he's given you a desire to serve his kingdom in a specific way, you should be listening to that. Oh, a dream big. Think about the ministries that can be started. Think about the things that, that, I mean, when I look at a group like this, I think, look at the world changers. Look at the world changers. I'll never forget um, when, I was, when I was in seminary and um, this old boy uh, told me about his most influential spiritual leader. The person who poured into him the most was a pastor that came to him um, in like Emporia, Kansas. And that's where he met him, and that's where he was shepherded by him. But he said that this pastor came from uh, West Virginia, and that there was like four or 500 people in the little city that they were in, but there was like 800 people in the church. And it was just blowing up. And then that pastor left that church um, in healthy condition under good circumstances, came to Emporia to take over a tiny little church. And he said, that the whole time this guy was in college, that he was at this church, there was like no more than 20, 25 people. He said at Christmas time, it was like maybe 30 at most. But he said by the end of like a two-year period, 12 of the 20 people who were part of that church ended up going into full-time ministry at some point in their life. Think about that. Like, so I don't freak out when we, we got, you know, 10, 15, 20 people here. I think this is a bunch of world changers. But you've got to start dreaming a little bit for the kingdom of God. Some of us say, ah, it just feels weird. I don't want to dream for the kingdom of God. It feels odd. No, it's okay. This is the kingdom of God. We want this thing to expand. You've got to open your mind a little bit. The second question you've got to ask yourself, and this is the opposite of the dream big, is what opportunities are right in front of you? What opportunities are right in front of you? Because some people... Um, Here's what happens. If you do the first thing without the second thing, if you dream big, but you don't think about the opportunities right in front of you, then you'll have grander ideas of how you can serve the kingdom of God, but you won't serve the local church right in front of you. There are things, there are opportunities right in front of you. You see this with college students all the time. Well, I'm only here for a couple years. I'm only here for a year. Well, you serve hard for a couple years. You serve well for a year. I'm here for two months. Well, you serve well for two months. There's opportunities right in front of your face. You've got to dream big for the kingdom of God. But right now, listen, God's probably not going to call you to something big if you're not faithful in the small stuff. And I hate saying that because the local church isn't the small stuff. But it's small steps sometimes when that's what's right in front of you. On the flip side, if all you think about is number two, 
the opportunities right in front of your face, but you don't ever partake in number one, you don't ever dream big for the kingdom of God, then you might very well be serving in a valuable role, but you don't, you're limiting what God might ultimately want to do with you. He, he might want to do something bigger. You know, um, when I was a believer for about six months, I, I didn't know what I was doing. I was 22 years old, and I had a little lawn care business. I was going to school down in Hutch, and I was doing my thing, and um, I had no leadership qualities in my life at that point but God uh, saving my soul and starting to change me from the inside out was giving me a desire to serve and to reach and I remember my first couple times serving I I was like a you know I've I've told you guys this before I was a parking lot greeter guy and just directing traffic in the parking lot and I remember just being so scared of it and so thinking about doing anything big for the kingdom of God in my mind was crazy even though um, that that is big right anything in the kingdom is big but I remember thinking about the church, and I I remember going to a couple leaders and saying, do we do anything for widows or for people who um, are shut-ins? And they can't, you know, like we get calls all the time as a church um, that people need help. Like, do we do anything for them? No, we don't. We're overwhelmed. We've got so much on our plate. Like, we want to help them, but we can't. I said, well, let's start something. They said, you could start something. And so we started that ministry. I think we titled it something weird, like LifeLink or something. We just threw a a title on it because that's what you're supposed to do, right? And um, we started getting volunteers. And before you know it, there's like 55 volunteers who are like, we'll be a part of that. We don't want to lead it, but we'll be a part of that. I'm thinking, well, I don't want to lead it either. (laughs) I just wanted to be a part of it. But here I am. Of course, I got to know my wife through that ministry. Um, But for that year, um, I was only part of it for a year before we, we moved on. For that year, every single week, we went to a widow's house, someone who was um, financially hard up, someone who needed help. It, it was everything from changing light bulbs to building decks to um, we did everything. And we blessed the socks off that city for a year. And I handed that ministry off to someone else, and it turned into like a chainsaw ministry. I think they travel the country doing stuff like that now. But I had no confidence that I was going to be able to do that. But I wanted to do something for the kingdom of God, regardless of what it cost me. And that was what was right in front of me. And that's when the beauty of dreaming big and the opportunities right in front of you collide. And you realize maybe you can do the stuff that God has placed on your heart. You can do it right now. Maybe it doesn't exist in the local church. Maybe you're going to be the one who starts it. But God, he can use anyone. And you guys know that. Um, I'm proof of that. Got to dream big, but you got to serve faithfully right where God has planted you. Last but not least, you guys having fun? You doing okay tonight? Well, there's cookies for afterwards. I think that should help. Number four, the goal is team expansion. It's team expansion. So when you think about what this whole chapter was about, it's about building stuff. But what were they actually building? And you see over and over and over and over that the gates were set, that the bars and the bolts and the doors, they were set. And it says that over and over and over. You see that repetition. Ten times it says that out of the 45 projects. So most of what was built was the walls, but a good chunk of it, like a high percentage, was doors. Let me ask you, when it comes to the spiritual stuff, relationships that you're building, going out there to build relationships, to make disciples, are you um, building walls or are you building doors in your discipleship? Some of us, relationally and theologically, got to ask ourselves that question. Relationally, are you building walls or are you um, presented with opportunities to get to know your coworkers more and you just shut it down? Are you... um, 
prompted by God to share the gospel, talk to someone, pray for someone. Maybe you sat in class with them all semester, and you're like, oh, my gosh, God, you're opening the door, but you put that wall up. Because you're like, I can't do that. You have a Jonah moment because you're scared. Or, or are you looking to make some doors where you go out of your way to get to know them? Where you say, you know what? Our paths ain't going to cross again. It's the end of the semester. I'm going to go talk to you. <laughs> I'm going to be bold. And I'm going to get any in route into your life that I can. Theologically, you look at it the same way. When you disciple people, are you putting up walls? Some of us, we meet with people for Bible studies. But if we look at what the trajectory is of our discipleship, we're putting rules, 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 rules in front of them, and the people we're with are worn out. And you don't talk much about grace or mercy anymore. And so you thought this was gospel discipleship, but it's mostly just religious discipleship. Because when you sit down and start walking through how to follow Christ with someone, it's easy to just go straight to the commands, which are beautiful, and what we need to obviously pay attention to, but you forget about the grace. And you got to be careful. You see, the gospel is um, it's both walls and gates. It's walls in the sense that Scripture says it's foolishness to those who are perishing. Like they can't even understand it. That it's a stumbling block to the Greeks and the Jews, to the religious and the philosophers. And they're just like, this doesn't make sense. But on the flip side, it's not a wall, it's a gate. In that we see in John, Jesus is the door. He's the gate. His sheep know his voice. And we know there's only one way in. And it's a narrow way. But it's through Christ. I think um, I want what I'm going to say next and start to wrap this up. I want it. I want this to make sense and not just be. We're going to trust God that this is going to make sense. If you're going to be a disciple maker, you have to have a healthy tension, especially in America, in our culture. You got to understand the evangelical culture and some of the pitfalls that we have. You got to have a healthy tension between walls and gates. You see, in general, we have. Um, we have a, a gate mentality that we just want to share the gospel as much as possible and we want to pray the sinner's prayer, right? Although you don't find that in scripture, but we want people to ask Jesus into their heart, although that's not commanded in scripture, right? Scripture tells us, Jesus says, repent and believe. Repent and believe. But that's not often in our vocabulary. We like the belief part, not the repent part. And so we, we got this prayer that we want to pray all the time and so we just do whatever we can to get the prayer you'll even see on some church facebook and you'll see pastors throw up 25 hands were raised today 25 people got saved today really how do you know like they raised a hand lots of people have been saved that way pastor andy does that he'll say bow your head raise your hand lots of people get saved that way but we have a crusade mentality that's just whatever it takes, share the gospel, get them to pray a prayer, make a decision, and they're good. They're good to go. And you gotta have a healthy, you gotta have a healthy understanding of some healthy walls, things that you need to put up and say, do you know what you're getting into? Maybe warning is a better. And, but also keep that open door that we want you to come into the kingdom. 
You see, that's what Jerusalem was, right? They had walls because it was protective of something, but there were gates because people came in and out. And you need both. And, and we don't have both in the evangelical church. You see, the walls that we need are protecting of the faith and not watering down the gospel for the sake of someone saying a prayer. Saying, oh, this is just a blessing and there's no hardship with the gospel. No, there's hardship promised with the gospel. And Jesus says, count the cost to follow me. That you've got you to reject your mother and your father. You've got to leave everything behind. These are hard commands that need to be shared with people before they place their faith in Jesus. They need to know the Jesus that they're placing their faith in. Because if you water it down to the point where they can pray a prayer and not think that there's any cost, then don't be surprised if their discipleship and their walk with Jesus is just as watered down as the gospel you gave them. And then you wonder, why doesn't it look like there's very many mature people in the church? Well, because we sold them, because we wanted prayers prayed and hands raised, a gospel that's no gospel at all. Let me give you an example. Um, Several weeks ago, I had a guy uh, that I met with. um, He was fresh out of prison. And he had a history of all kinds of issues. And he had an ankle bracelet and he needed to charge it. And so we had plenty of time to chat. And um, as we were chatting, I could tell he was using some lingo. He wanted, he needed some money for some stuff. Um, but he was also addicted to meth. And I asked him when the last time he had meth was. He said in prison, but he just got out of prison. And I talked to some other guys who had been ministering to him. And, and they were like, no, he said he just had meth like a couple of days ago. He was obviously high as we were talking. But he wanted me to lead him to the Lord. And he said, um, I just got to surrender my life. And then two minutes later, he'd say, but Jesus is my Lord. And he was going through all this evangelical lingo, just all the cliches. Today's the day I got to surrender. Today's the day. Then he'd say he's got a relationship with Jesus. Then he'd say he was following Satan. It was just over and over. And he was obviously, he, he just wasn't in his right mind. But we talked about the gospel. We talked about um, what, what Jesus says about following him, the hard stuff, the beautiful stuff, everything in between. But he wanted me to pray a prayer with him of salvation. And, um, and I didn't. And he got angry, like crazy angry. And I, I had to go. Um, but there was a friend there who was a disciple maker, and he was coming in, and he was kind of taking over this, this time. It was in the middle of a worship service here, and I had to, I had to go um, up here. And, it, and I knew this guy, man, he, he was going to lead him to Jesus or something. If the guy needed led to Jesus, he was going to do it. And anyway, um, this guy threw a fit because I, as the pastor, wouldn't lead him to Jesus. I wouldn't pray this prayer. And we ended up taking him. Um, around town and we offered to help him financially we helped him we wanted to help him and he said no i'm going to follow satan because you guys wouldn't lead me it was a weird bizarre situation i'll just leave it at that but afterwards i felt like this weird tension and this kind of guilt because every part of me for the sake of numbers and for the sake of that's the goal get them to pray the prayer if they pray the prayer then you're a disciple maker everything's great And, and i'll tell you this After years of ministry, even a few short years, I have led a lot of people to Jesus face-to-face. Those first couple years, I led dozens of people sitting across the table, the Romans Road, doing it. And I remember a couple months after, a lot of them seeing absolutely no devotion to Christ, no life change, wondering, maybe it's not Jesus who's not good enough. Maybe I'm selling them something that's not what Jesus was telling us to share. And man, it's changed the way I do ministry. 
And I could have eased my conscience by saying, let's pray a prayer, because here's the deal. The dude know, knew how to work the system, and he knows if I want money from a local, I'm just being honest with y'all. If I want money from a local church and I can get the pastor to pray the prayer with me, he ain't going to say no to anything that I need financially. That's, uh, that's what was going on. And yet, what we wanted to do was further the conversation with him when he was in his right mind. But he didn't want that. He wanted the prayer, he wanted the money, and he wanted to get out of here. Because he'd probably done that to a bunch of other churches and a bunch of other pastors. And they all probably went back to their churches and said, we just led someone to the Lord. And yet this dude's view of Christianity was twisted. I wonder, are we really doing a service to people? Because we've got to go back and clean that mess up when we teach them later on that following Jesus is a lot more than what we sold them in youth camp. Here's what I'm saying. As disciple makers, we want team expansion. We want this team to grow. We want this family to grow. But you've got to share the hard truths with the beautiful truths because they're all God's truth. Following Jesus is hard, and yet at the same time, team expansion doesn't involve tryouts. You can't be good enough. You can't do more because 2,000 years ago on a cross, Jesus paid the price, but he's still calling us to count the cost. So when you go out there, share the gospel, but share the whole gospel. Let them know there's an invitation for rest for the weary. Jesus wants them right now the way they are. But he's going to clean them up. And there's going to be repentance. And there's going to be change. And it's going to be hard. But it's going to be awesome. And it's worth it. Because people who actually walk that walk don't ever come back and say, I regret it. When you taste eternal life, you don't ever say, I regret it. You say, it's hard but I don't regret it. Let me pray for you.